Well, good morning. Let's get started. Can someone uh, grab those doors? We'll get started. It is uh, someone's birthday today. I will not mention who, uh, but happy birthday to you, Elder's wife, who is here this morning. So just to kind of uh, orient us to where, where we are in our semester, we have been talking about uh, bibliology, that is the doctrine of Scripture, what is it that we believe about Scripture. We will be transitioning here in the next couple of weeks to talk about hermeneutics, that is uh, how do we interpret Scripture, so kind of what is Scripture and then what do we do with Scripture, and uh, kind of to bridge that, what we've done is kind of introduced a, a few uh, weeks where we can talk about the doctrine of Scripture historically. So what's kind of the historical development? And last week, uh, Zach walked us through kind of the doctrine of Scripture as we see it in the patristics or the early church fathers and then into the uh, medieval ages uh, and so forth. And so what were some of the trends that we saw uh, developing over time, especially within the Roman Catholic Church uh, in the medieval period? Anybody remember any of those from last week? There was an elevation of tradition. That's, that's absolutely one. There was a, a resistance to Bibles being what? Read, yes. And the reason they couldn't be read is because there, there were not Bibles that were available in the common vernacular of the people, right? There was just the, uh, the Latin translation, the Vulgate, which most, the, the, the vast majority of people uh, were, were unable to read. There was this distinction between uh, laity and, uh, and clergy that we talked about, this, this really strong sacred-secular divide, so strong that there was even a, uh, a literal physical barrier uh, between you and the, um, uh, the priest whenever you would go to take the elements or whatever it might be. Uh, and then we also talked about this elevation of a particular way of reading the scriptures that was uh, called the the fourfold sense of scripture. Do you remember that? We talked about uh, the there's this literal interpretation of scripture. There's an allegorical interpretation of scripture. There's a moral interpretation of scripture and then an anagogical interpretation of scripture. Anagogical just kind of means heavenly, spiritual uh, reading of scripture. And so we saw, like in the example of David and Goliath, the, the literal interpretation of that is that David historically killed this warrior from Gath. The allegorical interpretation of that is that uh, Jesus destroyed the devil on the cross. We see the similarities between what David does with Goliath and what Jesus does with the devil. The moral is that we, like David, should trust God in battle against sin. And the anagogical is that good ultimately triumphs over evil when Christ returns. And so for a particular story like David and Goliath, we would kind of look at this fourfold uh, reading of Scripture, and we might not have that many issues with it. Uh, but what we looked at was the way that over time this allegorical method is going to result in some really crazy uh, things, such as uh, Augustine's reading of uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where literally everything means something else. So the donkey is a particular thing and the, uh, the oil that's used to anoint them is a different thing and the two coins that he leaves are a different thing and the innkeeper is something else and so forth. And so we saw this excess that uh, begins to develop over time in 
this particular uh, method of reading the scripture. So if you weren't here last week, I'd highly encourage you uh, to go back and to listen to the audio just to kind of get a feel for the way that the doctrine of scripture is going to uh, evolve or in some senses devolve as the church moves through this time, the, the medieval ages. And then today what we're going to talk about is coming out of the medieval period into the time of the Reformation, how we see these developments in a lot of ways kind of recapturing some of the things that are lost within the medieval period. By the way, this is the 500, this year is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. And uh, so just to, to make you aware, we'll be announcing this more in the future. But on the Sunday night immediately uh, before uh, Halloween, which is also Reformation Day, uh, we will be having an event here at the church where we'll have a time where we just get to teach through what's happening in the Reformation. We'll sing some Reformation hymns and so forth. So anyway, that'll be Sunday, October 29th. So I'd encourage you to, uh, to be there. But again, we'll be announcing those uh, in the future. So when we talk about the Reformation, one of the things that we just automatically think of is just sort of this unified movement in the church. But really, whenever you look at uh, the historical uh, movements of the Reformation, we're not talking about one sort of unified uh, protest. We're really talking about a number of different strands of reform that are all happening somewhat simultaneously. Uh, so uh, around the same time that you have uh, Luther... You also have a guy in uh, Switzerland. So Luther's doing his thing in Germany. You have a guy in Switzerland named Zwingli, and he's also carrying on this Reformation. Uh, in addition, you also have Reformation within the Roman Catholic Church itself uh, that doesn't uh, ultimately uh, result in a sort of Protestant perspective, but it's just some uh, inter-Roman Catholic Reformation. Later on, you have uh, Calvin. Uh, you also have a number of pre-Reformation movements. There's a number of, and we'll, we'll talk about a few of these later, but there's a number of things that are actually happening well before Luther arrives on the scene. Luther is not simply this uh, spark uh, out of complete darkness. There is a kind of a strand of lights that precede him, all calling for uh, Reformation and protesting certain abuses within the Roman Catholic Church. And so there's this, this very diverse streams of reformation that are all occurring somewhat uh, simultaneously. So think about the number of denominations today, and you'll kind of get an idea of some of the uh, diversity that exists within uh, this period of the reformation. And the biggest developments that we'll talk about as it relates to doctrine of scripture uh, today that we see in the reformation are the question of authority. What is the ultimate authority uh, as, it, uh, as it relates to, uh, obviously, under uh, God's authority. What is our ultimate authority that we look to uh, for faith and practice and godliness and life and so forth? The second one is uh, the importance of translations. There's this proliferation of translations that take place within uh, the Reformation. There is also this, uh, this emphasis on the priesthood of believers. There's this breakdown. No longer is there a physical or spiritual barrier between the sacred and the secular. No longer is, this, is there this fierce division between uh, the clergy and the laity. There is kind of this evening of the field. And, uh, and there's this recognition of the priesthood of all believers. That we all have access uh, to the Father through the Son. And we don't have to go through others. There's one mediator between God and man. There's not a 
secondary uh, mediatrix like Mary, or we don't have to go through the intercession of priests or whatever it might be. And then lastly, there is this recovery of a better hermeneutic, whereas uh, the, uh, the, uh, in the medieval period, there is this, this emphasis upon this uh, kind of distorted allegorical method of interpreting Scripture. There's this recovery of a healthy interpretation of Scripture, and with that, a, a recovery of a number of truths that had been distorted or obscured uh, in the uh, medieval period. So those are the four categories that we'll uh, talk about today. So the first one is uh, authority, the question of authority. Though the chief sort of uh, theological issue that's taking place in the Reformation, if you've, if you've studied any of the Reformation, you study uh, Luther and so forth, you know his sort of primary driving concern is the issue of justification. That is, how can someone be declared just before a just God? How can I, who am unjust, I who am guilty, I who am unrighteous, that word righteous and just are from the same uh, underlying uh, root word in, uh, in Greek. How can I, who am unrighteous, be made righteous or declared righteous by a righteous God? Because I'm not righteous. This is the chief issue that's driving Luther. But you might actually look at it from a perspective of there's actually something that perhaps is even bigger that's going on, and that's the question of authority. What is the ultimate authority? for a uh, Christian. And but the reason that I would say this is maybe even more important than justification is because if you have this correct uh, uh, ordering of authority, then all these other theological dominoes are going to fall. If you begin to understand the primacy of Scripture as being our authority, then you can develop all of these other theologies underneath that that are encapsulated within uh, scripture. So within the Roman Catholic Church, this question of authority had been brewing for years. In the uh, 14th and 15th centuries, we have something uh, that uh, occurs within the Roman Catholic Church called the Great Schism. You might have heard of this before, you might not. But it's the, the Western Schism. And, uh, and what we have during this period is moving out of a time period. Uh, some of you may know this, some of you may not, but there was a, a, a period of time where the papacy moved from Rome into Avignon, France. And coming out of that, there is this period where uh, the, the French elect a pope, the Romans elect a pope, and then there's another pope who's elected as well. So at one time, there are three people who are all vying for the position of uh, the pope. So this uh, kind of universal council is called, called together to vote on the issue, who's the true pope? You have three different popes at once. Who is the one true pope? And, uh, and so this council decides one of these guys is the true pope. And what do you think those other two guys said? Those other two guys who are deposed, they say, well, a pope's authority is greater than a council's authority, so I don't recognize your authority, and I'm still the pope. And so you have this question of authority that's brewing within uh, the Roman Catholic Church itself. You have the question, is it a council who has the ultimate authority? Is it the church as a whole, which is kind of what a council represents? Is it the church as a whole that has the ultimate authority? Or is it the pope that has the ultimate authority? And the reformers are going to come into the kind of the seedbed when, when all of this discussion is taking place. And they're going to introduce a third option and say it's not, it's not the pope. 
And it's not a council that has the ultimate authority. The ultimate authority is Scripture, and those things should be subjected uh, to Scripture. So as we talked about last week, within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, there is this idea um, that begins to develop over time of kind of what's called the dual source view of authority, dual source view of authority. And that is the idea that tradition and Scripture are uh, equal. But really what we see happening is kind of this subjection of Scripture to tradition. And the way that that happens is because they believe that the church itself is the final authority since the church has the right to define and interpret Scripture and tradition. Does that make sense? So you have, in theory, you have the, the church or tradition and Scripture side by side. But at the end of the day, it is uh, the church that gets to define what it is that Scripture is actually saying. So although, uh, in theory, they are side by side, in reality, there is a subjection of Scripture to the doctrine of the church. And so that is uh, the dual source or uh, it's also called solo ecclesia, that is the church who is really the ultimate authority uh, within uh, matters of, uh, as it relates to uh, faith and religion and so forth. And obviously the, the uh, reformers are going to respond to that and say, no, Scripture is what is primary. They're going to uh, advocate for something that's called sola scriptura, S-O-L-A scriptura. This is one of the various solas that we'll get into towards the end. Sola Scriptura. Now, there is a, a distortion of this idea of sola scriptura that you're probably familiar with, and that's called solo scriptura. This is not what the reformers held. This is what is held in a lot of fundamentalist churches uh, today, restorationist churches, and so forth. This is the, uh, the kind of things that would be like no creed but the Bible. If it ain't in the Bible, I don't believe it. Uh, the Bible says it, I believe it. That settles it. Some of these sort of pithy statements you might have seen on bumper stickers or whatever it might be. And kind of the idea of solo scriptura is the idea that scripture is the only authority for us. Whereas sola scriptura, the difference between sola and solo, sola scriptura is, is saying that scripture is the, uh, the ultimate authority. Not the only authority. There's a lot of other authorities that we have in our life. Uh, government is an authority. Your parents are an authority, uh, and so forth. There are a lot of other authorities we have. The Reformers would even say tradition is an authority. But there is one ultimate authority, and that is the idea of sola scriptura. So again, for the Reformers, sola scriptura did not mean that the church and its sort of official summaries of scripture, the creeds, the confessions, the catechisms, uh, and so forth, had no authority. Rather, w- what they would say is that the, uh, the authority of uh, the traditions and creeds and so forth uh, were to be subjected to the ultimate authority of Scripture. That scripture is the master, if you will, and that the church is the minister. Scripture is the master, but the church is the uh, minister. And the reason that this was so important, especially for a guy like Luther is because of his view of Scripture. His view of Scripture is that Scripture alone is inerrant. Scripture alone is inerrant because he believed that creeds and councils and popes and tradition and so forth were possible uh, of uh, making errors, 
whereas Scripture it's, uh, alone was inerrant. That's why he said Scripture was to be uh, the master and tradition and so forth was to be uh, subjected to it because of this idea of inerrancy, that popes aren't inerrant, that councils aren't inerrant, that traditions and creeds, as helpful as we might find the various creeds of the early church, that they are not absolutely infallible and inerrant and inspired and so forth. They're helpful summaries, but only Scripture itself is uh, inerrant. And so this is why Luther, uh, whenever he uh, has this moment where he's called uh, to uh, recant at the uh, diet, uh, if you read it, it just looks like diet of worms, which sounds like a really horrible diet plan. Uh, but diet is a word that means an assembly, and it's not really worms, it's verms. Uh, but this place that he was called to, and, uh, and this is his famous, um, uh, famous quote for whenever he was told that he must recant of some of the things that he had been preaching and teaching as it relates to justification, as it relates to indulgences, as it relates to Scripture and, uh, and so forth. This is his famous quote. It's on your sheet. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God, thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Uh, amen. All right, so notice the word there after he says, I, I can believe neither pope nor councils. What's that next word? Alone, right? So he's not saying I can't believe popes or councils. Popes said things that were true, right? Councils said things that were true. His point is not that we can't believe anything that popes say or we can't believe anything that councils say. His point is I can't believe them alone. Why? Because they make errors, because they make mistakes, because they're fallible, because they are human. They're tainted with uh, this uh, potential that we have for mistakes. Scripture alone is preserved from those things. But for Luther, there are all these other various sources of authority. So reading that, you would have potential other authorities, reason. He says, uh, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scriptures or by evident reason, Councils, he recognizes that councils can be authoritative. His conscience, acting against one's own conscience, is neither safe nor sound. So again, for Luther, there are other authorities that are just one primary authority. The primary authority is the Scripture. You see this uh, restoration of what it was, the original ordering of authorities, where uh, over time, tradition had kind of trumped uh, Scripture. And you see this reorienting uh, back. And Luther's not sort of uh, breaking new ground in doing this. What he's doing, though, is he is cutting off uh, the, the church from Scripture and subordinating the church to uh, Scripture. So this is kind of revolutionary in the idea that he is suggesting that the teaching of Scripture and the teaching of the church may not be identical. This was what was somewhat revolutionary. The vast majority of people within the Roman Catholic Church assumed that those two things are equal, that the teaching of the church and the teaching of Scripture are identical. 
that they're interwoven. They're so tightly interwoven that you can't separate the two. And what Luther says is, no, you can separate the two. That the, church, uh, that the teachings of the church and the teachings of Scripture very well might be uh, in contradiction uh, to uh, each other. And, uh, and so what, what's not happening in the Reformation, what's not happening is uh, for an argument that there is only one authority. It's the argument of which authority is uh, primary, which yardstick is accurate. Remember the word canon. We've talked about in canonicity that word means kind of ruler or yardstick. What is the yardstick? What is the measurement? How do we know if your ruler is 11 inches and my ruler is 12 inches, how do we know which is actually a foot? There must be some sort of standard. And what Luther is going to argue and the other reformers is going to argue is that the uh, that Scripture itself is that uh, yardstick. And so this is a quote from Luther as it relates to this. He says, the church was born by the word of promise through faith. So the church was born by the word of promise. So in that uh, sentence, the church was born by the word of promise. In other words, uh, it's the word that gives birth to the church. The word is primary. The church is secondary. The church is born by the word of promise through faith, and by this same word is nourished and preserved. That is to say, it is the promise of God that make the church and not the church that makes the promise of God. For the word of God is incomparably superior to the church. And in this word, the church, being a creature, listen to that again, and in this word, the church, being a creature, has nothing to decree, ordain, or make, but only to be decreed, ordained, and made. For who begets his own parent? Who brings forth his own maker? In other words, Scripture is primary. Tradition is secondary. So what I want to do is we kind of look at, there's this tug of war that exists within the, uh, the uh, Re- Reformation period between tradition and Scripture in terms of uh, primacy. And uh, you have the Roman Catholic Church, which is saying tradition, church is primary. You have the Reformers, which are saying scripture is primary. So I want to look at it uh, as uh, kind of a a larger scale uh, in in regards to the the kind of the redemptive narrative of of, uh, throughout scripture uh, even and then beyond and see how this has always been the case, this sort of tug of war that exists between uh, scripture and tradition or word and uh, tradition. So think all the way back to early Judaism. Early Judaism, uh, starting with uh, the appearance of uh, or, or God's first proclamation to Abraham, is a word, right? And then you have uh, God speaking to uh, Israel, uh, speaking through Moses and so forth. There is this, within early Judaism, uh, this value of revelation over tradition, there's this emphasis on the word of God and on the prophetic voice where, where Judaism very much saw itself as a revealed religion, a religion, uh, a religion that is revealed by the word of God. This is why there's this emphasis throughout the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. The word of God is primary. But over time, what you see developing, even within Judaism, even, even within the contours uh, of uh, the Bible, you see this development where tradition begins to uh, come up from under uh, Scripture and begins to kind of have second place to it, and then over time even begins to usurp its author- uh, authority. 
over time, there begins to be this wall that's built around uh, the law. So there's a particular law, and that law says, this is what you do on the Sabbath. And so what happens over time within the Mishnah, which within uh, sort of the Jewish tradition, is there then begins to say, okay, but how many steps can I take? Okay, well, let me uh, count that out for you. And what can I cook and what can't I cook uh, and so forth. And there begins to be this wall. This is what the law says. You can't do this. But we don't want to get close, so let's do this. And then we do this and then we do this. And all of a sudden there's this huge wall that exists because of the role of uh, tradition. And, uh, and so this we see in uh, uh, Mark 7, 9 through 13, one of the critiques that Jesus has about this role of tradition that's developed within uh, post-exilic Judaism. Uh, And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have, you would have gained from me as korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things that you do. So early, uh, early Judaism, there is this uh, primacy of the word over tradition. Within post-exilic uh, Judaism, uh, around the first century, there is this subjection of Scripture, the Word of God, uh, to tradition. Within early Christianity, uh, within the, the first couple of centuries or so of the church, there is this reordering where Scripture again has uh, uh, the primary place. But then we see, again, within the medieval period, there is this, again, this tug of war that exists where tradition uh, begins to come alongside of revelation and then begins to uh, subvert it. And the trick is, as we kind of mentioned, is the idea of the magisterium, this magisterium. It's a, a fancy word that refers to the teaching authority of the church, which has sole authority over the meaning of the text. Within medieval Roman Catholicism, the church has the right to define what a text does and does not mean. It does not matter if you and I see what they say uh, that the church says within the text itself. What they say is, by very definition, what the text means because of this idea of the magisterium. The church has the sole authority over the meaning of the text. So it kind of be like if, if Jerry and I both have an equal vote in where we go to dinner, right? We're going to go to dinner Jerry and I both have an equal vote, and yet at the end of the day, I get to look at whatever his vote is, and I get to decide what he actually said. So he might have said Whataburger, right? But I actually decided, you know what? No, he didn't really mean Whataburger. He meant Fuddruckers, all right? So I know he said this one particular thing, but I'm going to interpret it in this other way. That's the way that uh, this tug of war exists between tradition and Scripture within the uh, Roman Catholic Church in the medieval period. That Scripture, according to them, is inerrant. Scripture is inspired, but the church holds the hermeneutic key. The church holds the key, and only the church can unlock the real meaning. And so you see how, although in their mind, Scripture is ultimate, Tradition is subjected to it, but actually when you look at it logically, it's actually tradition which is over uh, Scripture. And so in Protestantism, within the Reformation, there is, again, this reorienting where revelation again takes a primary place over, uh, over tradition. And, uh, and so what we see here 
over uh, kind of an analysis over you know four thousand five thousand years or so of God's dealing with His people is that any time there is this tug of war, any time there is this tension, any time that uh, anything comes alongside of Scripture, that it's actually going to jump over it. Right? This is kind of like uh, my in-laws have a dog, and sometimes we'll go and walk that dog, and, uh, and, and she's fairly well uh, trained, and so we just have a little, uh, we don't have her on a leash or anything like that. Uh, and, uh, and so as long as she will walk right behind me, kind of healing, as long as she's right behind me, she's good. But the moment I actually let her get next to me, then all of a sudden she takes off running. That's the same way that tradition always is going to go with Scripture. Anytime you allow uh, tradition or the church or whatever it is to come alongside Scripture, it has this tendency to go above it because it's this man-made uh, sort of thing. So that's the idea of authority that we see within the Reformation church, this, this re-emphasis on the idea that Scripture is the ultimate authority uh, for the church. The, uh, the second thing that we see kind of developing within the, the uh, time of the Reformation is the idea of uh, translations. So Zach mentioned last week that the overwhelming majority of Roman Catholic services uh, throughout the medieval period were conducted entirely in uh, Latin, which was not spoken by the overwhelming majority of uh, people, plus that the only acceptable version of the Bible was the Vulgate, which is the, an early Latin translation of the Bible, um, which is ironic, uh, and I think uh, Zach even pointed to the irony that the, uh, one of the reasons the Roman Catholic Church didn't want uh, the uh, scripture to be translated into all of these other vernaculars, all these other languages, the common languages of the people, was because to do so would be vulgar. And yet the vulgate, the very root word there is vulgar. It was considered a vulgar translation. Why? Because it's not uh, the actual uh, divine, uh, divinely inspired language. It's this common translation. It's vulgar. It's common so you see, even there, there's this, these hints of the sacred, uh, secular divide. It's also really ironic that the primary reason that Jerome translates the scriptures into Latin was so that the majority of people who existed within the empire could read it. That was the entire reason that he translated into Latin, because in the, I think it was 5th century, 4th or 5th century, uh, that he translates it, the majority of people who live in the empire are Roman, and therefore the majority of people speak and read Latin. And so he puts it in the common language so that it can be understood by the people. And what is it that's happening within the uh, time of the medieval period? Is the Roman Catholic Church is saying, it must be in Latin, it cannot be translated, or else the rest of the people would be able to read it. The very reason that it was translated in the first place, all these levels of irony. It's no accident uh, as well that the Reformation is going to kind of come out of and overlap with this period of, of time throughout history that we call the Renaissance, all right? The Renaissance, which is this restoration that's a restoration of kind of Greek thought, Latin thought, uh, early um, emphasis upon uh, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and a return to art and, uh, and so forth. And one of the main slogans of the Renaissance is uh, this phrase, ad fontes, Ad fontes, which means to the fountain. In other words, go back to the source, right? 
If you worry about potentially there is something in the stream that's been corrupted over time, go back to the source. Go back to the source, track that down. There is this emphasis within the Renaissance, and it occurs within art and literature and all these kinds of things. That's what's going to happen as it relates to Bible translation within the Reformation, is they're going to recognize perhaps our translation, perhaps the Vulgate, some of the excesses, some of the abuses that we're seeing within the modern Roman Catholic Church, some of them potentially are related to the fact that the stream has been corrupted. So let's go back to the source. Let's go back to the Greek. Let's go back to the Hebrew uh, and, uh, and so forth. And so... Uh, in the Renaissance, you have this, let's return back to Greek and Latin classics. In the Reformation, you're going to have this idea, let's go back to Scripture. Let's go back to the Greek. Let's go back to the Hebrew. Uh, and uh, let's, let's uh, create some translations that help us uh, to restore some of the ideas of uh, abuses. Let's retrace our steps. Let's go back to the source to find out where we potentially have gone astray regarding indulgences and penance and veneration of Mary and icons and all of these sorts of things. The Renaissance is going to lead us to this reconsideration of sources, which leads us to the reconsideration of Scripture, which leads to the reconsideration of doctrine, which leads to the Reformation, which leads to Bible translations, uh, and so forth. And so the idea of let's go back to translations, let's try to get translations in the common vernacular, the common language of the people, is not unheard of before the Reformation. We have, uh, after all, the, the Vulgate itself is a translation. It's a, a translation uh, of the Scripture into Latin, which was not the original languages. So the idea of translations were not uh, novel, but in general, they were uh, considered heretical and illegal. So we have a guy named John Wycliffe uh, in the 14th century, he translates uh, the Bible into common language, and uh, then he dies. After his death, he's declared a heretic. All of his writings are outlawed, and uh, so intense was the Roman Catholic opposition to his ideas, especially his ideas of translating Scripture into common language, that his body was actually exhumed from the grave. Uh, he was burned uh, while already dead. And his ashes were scattered around uh, throughout uh, a river uh, because of their opposition to this idea. Sometimes we talk about sort of Luther as this novel, again, this novel light in the darkness. W Wycliffe is going to be one of these examples of a little strand of light that uh, is 150 years or so before Luther. And yet these are the kind of things that Wycliffe is talking about. He's talking about translation of Scripture. He's talking about... Uh, the inadequacy and the deformity of the idea of transubstantiation, that is the Roman Catholic view of the Eucharist, that the, uh, the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. He's going to attack the idea of clerical celibacy, which the Roman Catholic Church is actually right now uh, debating whether they want to um, change their position on that. He's going to talk about uh, the, um, the uh, idea that masses for the dead are inappropriate. He's going to attack the practice of pilgrimages and the veneration of images. And you have a number of other examples uh, throughout history of guys like this who were kind of pre-Reformation voices of protest and Reformation. So again, translations weren't unheard of, but they were generally uh, illegal. But in the 16th century, you see this explosion 
in the idea of let's get the Bible into the hands of common folk. Let's get the Bible directly into their hands. So Erasmus, uh, who was a, a leading voice of kind of the uh, humanist movement, kind of the Renaissance uh, and so forth, although he remained a Roman Catholic for his entire life, he's going to uh, be a major push in uh, getting new translations of the Scripture uh, Luther himself produced a, uh, uh, a German translation. I thought this was an interesting quote by him. He said, It is not possible to reproduce a foreign idiom in one's na- native tongue. Uh, the proper method of translation is to select the most fitting terms according to the usage of the language adopted. To translate properly is to render the spirit of a foreign language into our own idiom. I try to speak as men do in the marketplace. In rendering Moses, I make him so German that no one would suspect he was a Jew. And so this is before Luther became somewhat anti-Semitic later in life and so forth. His point there is I want people to be able to understand and to read not this lofty theological language, but to understand it in their own terms. I want people individually to be able to encounter Christ, not to have this divide of language where you don't even understand what's happening uh, within the services, and you can't read. And so in God's providence, there is this fascinating thing that occurs in conjunction with this time of the Reformation. There is this renewed interest culturally in returning to sources in the Renaissance. There is this renewed theological interest in going back to Greek and Hebrew and offering new translations in the common language. And there is also this relatively new technology that allows all of these things to take place, this mass communication of translations. Just 300 miles from where Luther posted his theses in Wittenberg, there's a man named Gutenberg who invented a uh, printing press uh, with the revolutionary idea of movable type which revolutionized the printing industry such that uh, no longer was printing this really cumbersome thing. So at the same time all of these theological ideas are happening, uh, we are uh, just 50, 60 or so years removed from this invention of a completely uh, new uh, technology. Um, Paper had only also been recently imported from... uh, Uh, Asia into Europe, but the production was really cumbersome. At the exact same period, within 50 or so years of the Reformation, there is finally this breakthrough that allows for paper to be produced relatively efficiently and cheaply as well. So you have all of these things that are taking place. Before then, it took 170 calfskins or 300 sheepskins to produce one Bible because the Bible was printed on vellum, which is a a form of uh, leather, not just the cover and so forth, but the pages. But with the the introduction of uh, paper and the introduction of a printing press, now you have all of this opportunity. Again, there had been uh, Reformation ideas. There had been protests that had existed within the medieval period before, but in general, those were localized. They didn't spread what happens with, this, uh, with, with paper and the printing press is now all of a sudden what are localized protests begin to expand and they're able to be disseminated uh, and protests goes wide and so forth. And so in God's providence, there's all these things that are happening around the time of the Reformation uh, that are absolutely uh, fascinating. 
So in addition to uh, authority and kind of a reordering there, in addition to translations, there's also this leveling of the sacred-secular divide. Uh, We talked about um, last week that the kind of Roman Catholic uh, tradition is predicated upon the idea of mediation. There's no immediate access to God. You have to go through certain things, right? You, as the laity, can't approach the holy things, right? That's why there's a gate uh, within uh, Roman Catholic medieval uh, churches. Uh, So you can't get there. You have to go through a mediator. The mediators that you go through, you go through the priest, you go through the elements, uh, you go through Mary, who then goes through Jesus and so forth. All of these sorts of ideas of mediation. Uh, For forgiveness, you have to go through a priest. That priest relies upon Mary and her surplus of grace. Uh, and so the, the Reformation is, is going to kind of turn the Roman Catholic system on its head with the idea of sufficiency. In Roman Catholicism, one sacrifice of Christ, the one sacrifice that Christ has made is not enough. What's happening each week in the Eucharist is a new sacrifice, a new sacrifice, a new sacrifice, a new sacrifice, sufficiency. Faith is not enough, so you also have the sacraments and works and so forth. The Bible is not enough, so you also have the Apocrypha. Christ's payment is not enough, so you need purgatory. So again, the idea of sufficiency. Uh, Zach mentioned last week how Catholic parishioners weren't even allowed to experience, to partake in Christ's blood during the Eucharist. They generally weren't literate, and even if they were, they weren't, uh, certainly weren't proficient in uh, Latin. They would have known German or French or English or whatever language they spoke. They couldn't even understand the services. So imagine going to a service, your kind of life is revolving around uh, your relationship to the church, and you go to a service week in, week out, and you don't understand a word, right? Maybe occasionally Zachariah will use a word that you don't understand. Imagine not understanding a single thing. My first trip to Romania, 30 hours it took us to get there. We got there, two-hour trip in the car to get to a church, and then a buddy of mine stood up, and he preached for uh, 30 minutes or so with uh, translation. We think, man, that's that's great. I'm exhausted, but man, that was so good. And then the Romanian pastor gets up to preach, and he preaches, and there's no translation. There's one translator in our entire group, and she's seven people away from me, so I can't hear a single word. So, And he preached for an hour. I haven't slept in 32 hours at this point. I didn't catch a single word except for the word Nicodemus. At one point, the Romanian word for Nicodemus is Nicodemus. And so I knew, okay, we're probably in John 3. So I went to John 3, and I just kind of looked around in my Bible. Kind of felt like a kid kind of coloring or something like that. Imagine doing that every single week of your life. That was life in the medieval period as just a normal uh, commoner. So Luther, what Luther and the Reformers are doing is they're breaking down this sacred-secular divide. They're rediscovering this idea of the priesthood of all believers, that we ourselves, we don't need someone to mediate for us access to the Father besides Jesus. He's the one mediator between God and man. We simply go through him directly. We don't need priests for that. Pastors and teachers and so forth are helpful for explaining things and for encouraging us, but not for giving us access uh, to the Father. And so 
Uh, when Luther and the Reformers are discovering this, they recognize that if we're going to emphasize this personal, direct relationship that people can have with the Father through the Son, there has to be this recovery of the idea that people must be able to read. They must be able to read the Scriptures for themselves, which is challenging for a number of reasons. Not only are there no translations within the common language, but literacy at, at this period of time is 3 to 4%. Three to four percent, which is why coming out of this, you see this explosion historically of uh, universities and, and so forth because of this idea that with Christianity is this necessity of literacy. So you can read God's word uh, for uh, yourself. You also have this kind of explosion in the idea of, uh, you know, for a period of time, it's going to take a long time to change a a literacy rate from 3 to 4% up to 100% or whatever the goal is. And so you recognize that you have to do something in the meantime. Translation will help because then at least the pastor can read it in German or French or uh, whatever it might be. But what are other ways that we can do that? Which is why you see this explosion uh, historically in the writing of hymns. Luther was a, uh, a, a renowned uh, hymn, hymnist, hymn something. I don't know the word there, but... Uh, whatever it is, someone who writes hymns, that was uh, Luther. He says this, Next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our hearts, minds, and spirit. A person who does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God does not deserve to be called a human being. Luther was a little bit vitriolic. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of, uh, another word for donkeys, and the grunting of hogs. That's what, uh, that's what he said. So he wrote all of these hymns. Why? Because it was a way for him uh, to, uh, to disciple the people. It was a way for him to indoctrinate, in the positive sense of the word, the people. They couldn't read the Scriptures for themselves. You're going to have the Scriptures read to them, but even that is kind of a novel thing because they're coming from a, a context of 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, their entire life. They've never been able to understand what's being read to them because it's been in unattainable Latin. And so all of a sudden, uh, he says, what, what are ways that we can kind of, uh, as many ways as possible, what are as many media as possible to get uh, these uh, theological truths into the hearts of our people? And so there's this emphasis upon uh, music. There's also uh, a, a breakdown, not only of the sacred-secular divide as it relates to Scripture and so forth, but just in general, there's this idea, this recovery of the goodness of work, where no longer is, uh, is work seen as some sort of the secular pagan thing. You know, uh, the best Christians are priests and so forth, and they just read their Bibles and study Latin and all this kind of thing. Uh, and then commoners, they just do common work, and it's okay and so forth. There is this recognition that you see within the Reformers that uh, quote-unquote secular work is God-honoring work. This is a, a quote uh, by Luther. The work of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. All works are measured before God by faith alone. In effect, the whole economic system is the means by which God gives us our daily bread. Each part of the economic food chain is a vocation through which God works to distribute his gifts. So you have the reordering of authority. You have the idea of translation. You have the breakdown of the sacred-secular divide. 
And then you have this rediscovery of truths with this new hermeneutic that corrects the abuses of allegories and so forth. We talked about uh, translations being crucial in helping us to rediscover various truths. Uh, Zach mentioned uh, already how the, the Vulgate had a number of places where there were uh, mistranslations, or the translations could be uh, misleading. Most weren't uh, intentionally so on Jerome's part, uh, but there is this, this sense in which no translation is ever going to withstand a thousand years of language change. All right, so we talked about this before. Uh, I mentioned this, uh, just looking at the way the English language has developed. The word egregious, uh, which you think of, as being, if, I, if I say egregious, do you give that a thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs down. Something that's egregious is thumbs down. Originally, it meant something very good. It literally has changed over, uh, over time and over usage to mean the exact opposite of what it used to mean. A guy, the word guy, it originally meant a person of grotesque appearance. So if you sit, like, someone walks up to you and you're, hey, guy, that's rude, right? Uh, the word nice, it originally meant some, uh, someone that's ignorant or foolish, and uh, the word meat originally referred to any solid food, including vegetables, which is the exact opposite of what meat means uh, today. And so we see this, this language change. We see this even within Scripture. If you go read the King James Version of the Bible, you'll see references there to unicorns, right? You think unicorns, and you think this majestic flying beast with wings and floating on rainbows and glitter and all this kind of stuff, and it, like its tears are magical, and if you drink them, you get all these powers. That's what you think of of unicorns. The word unicorn just originally meant something with one horn, and so it was reference to things like a rhinoceros or whatnot. But there's this development of language over time, and so a lot of the the uh, the mistranslations in the Vulgate were not like Jerome intentionally trying to mistranslate something. It's just language has shifted over time. So we talked about some of those last week. I'll just briefly mention them again. In Ephesians 5, uh, in Greek, marriage is called a, a musterion. We get the word mystery from that. Uh, this this uh, marriage is a mystery, and it re- refers to Christ and the church. But the Vulgate translated it as a sacramentum, so this is where you get the Roman Catholic idea that marriage is a sacrament. In Matthew 4.17, uh, obviously our translation would say repent, metanoieo, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In the Vulgate it says do penance. You get the idea of penance. In Luke 1.28, Mary is said to be O favored one in Greek, but the Vulgate called her full of grace. Mary who's full of grace. And what Jerome probably meant there is one who has received grace. But what the Roman Catholic Church over time develops is this idea that she's received this treasury of grace and it can overflow uh, to you. Um, in addition to sort of these mistranslations, we have, there are all kinds of ways that uh, errors cor- uh, crept into uh, the medieval Roman Catholic Church. You have the misla- mistranslations we've talked about. You also have apocryphal texts. We've talked about that uh, as well. You have a number of texts that are outside of the Bible that the Roman Catholics can rely upon uh, in the medieval period for uh, some of their uh, doctrines. And then you also have the idea of tradition. And we talked about this before. Remember, for, for a Roman Catholic perspective, it doesn't matter if it's in the Bible or not. It's just like if you are a, a child, it doesn't matter if your mom or your dad 
told you that you could do certain thing. Go play outside. All that matters is if one did. And so if you're talking to a Roman Catholic and you say, well, the Bible doesn't say that, for them, it doesn't matter as long as tradition says it. Those are two equal authorities uh, for them. So you have three potential sources for bad doctrine in medieval uh, Catholicism, mistranslation, apocryphal texts, and uh, tradition. And you can see how the Reformation is going to deal below to each of those by emphasizing translation, by recovering the idea of the canon of Scripture, and, uh, and then by uh, subverting tradition to Scripture. So let's talk briefly, and then, and then I'll have Zach come up, uh, just about some of the, the theological truths that are recovered. And then hopefully this will kind of uh, whet your appetite for what we'll talk about on October 29th when we have kind of our celebration of the 500th year of the, uh, uh, the Reformation. So the first one being sola scriptura. There are traditionally five solas that are associated with the Reformation. We've talked before about that one, so I won't go into any more on that. The second one being justification. Uh, this is uh, what kind of was the uh, precipitating sort of thing for Luther uh, in this season is he's really wrestling with Romans chapter 1, the righteous shall live by faith, that idea. And, uh, and, and in his memoirs, he says, I grabbed hold of Paul and I wouldn't let him go until he told me what he meant by this idea, that the righteous uh, shall live by faith. And so this is recovery of this idea called sola fide, faith alone. So scripture alone, sola scriptura, faith alone, sola fide. There's also this reemphasis on um, the view of grace held by Augustine. We've talked about Augustine before, versus uh, the view of grace held by a guy named uh, Pelagius. Uh, if you yeah, boo. If you remember when Zach taught it, he made you boo every time he said Pelagius. Uh, and so Pelagius held that grace is something that could be merited, something that could be earned. Whereas we think of grace today, I mean, the very definition that we give to it is unearned favor. This return to the Augustinian view that it's not something that's earned or merited. So the sola gratia, sola gratia, grace alone, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia as opposed to some of the ideas of the indulgences that are developing within uh, the uh, medieval church. And a guy like John Tetzel, who's going out and selling indulgences and saying, even if you violated uh, Mary herself, if you purchase this indulgence, this will free you from that. This will purchase forgiveness for you. There's a, there's a story that may or may not be true uh, about uh, Tetzel, uh, and that is that one day he was preaching uh, about uh, indulgences. Zach mentioned last week how you could even purchase an indulgence for a future sin. So, you know, I, man, I'm going to go out and I'm going to party tonight. So I just want to purchase something just in case. And, uh, and so uh, one day Tetzel's preaching on this and a nobleman comes up to him afterwards and says, can I buy an indulgence for a future sin? And Tetzel says, yes. And so he sells it to him. On the way out of town, that nobleman attacks Tetzel uh, beats him up and takes his money, <laughs> and uh, he says that was the uh, that was the sin that I knew I was going to uh, commit. So who knows if that's true or not? But again, this idea of recovery of grace—grace grace is not something you purchase. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you merit. It's this return to the idea of grace alone. It's grace alone that saves us. Sola gratia. There's also this reemphasis on a personal nuance of salvation. Uh, we talked about that. Um, there's this, in, in medieval Roman Catholicism, your identity is looped in with the body. 
Now, I think we've swung the pendulum uh, in Protestantism today to where is this, there's this neglect of the corporate nature of our faith, and there's this emphasis of the individual nature of our faith. In fact, that's what we're preaching on uh, later today. Uh, but within the Roman Catholic Church, there is this neglect of the personal dimensions of your faith and this, this only emphasis upon the, um, uh, the corporate nature of the faith. And so in the, uh, in the uh, Reformation, there is this recovery of the idea uh, that, uh, that you can have relationship with Jesus on the basis of grace alone, faith alone, and so forth. And then lastly... Uh, in addition to sola scriptura and sola fide and sola gratia, you, you have what is not kind of a novel idea, but just a, a, a re-understanding of the idea of solus Christus uh, and sola dea gloria, the idea that it's Christ alone and to the glory of God alone. So these are, these are ideas that the Roman Catholic Church would have said. They would have said, we believe in Jesus alone. Uh, they would have said, uh, we believe everything is to be done to the glory of God alone. But there is this uh, re-emphasis or a rediscovery of the real depth of that within the uh, Reformation period.